Thank you for tuning in to the Queer Stories of Q's podcast. My name is Sebastian Callahan, and I'm a sophomore at Syracuse University and a research assistant at the LGBTQ Resource Center. I'm working to establish our first queer Syracuse oral history archive. A few of our goals for this project include amplifying marginalized voices that are often wrongfully spoken for or over. I'm pleased to be here with you. And I would like to extend all my gratitude to you for taking the time out of your schedule to participate in this interview. Please know that you may revoke your consent at any point during, this inter- during or after this interview. If you're feeling uncomfortable or would like to take a break, please let me know. Your safety and well-being is of our utmost priority, and we definitely want to make that clear. Thank you so much again for taking the time to share your story with us. We greatly appreciate it. And without further ado, let's dive into some of these questions. Well, hi, Minnie Bruce. It's great to be with you today. How are you doing? Doing good, Sebastian. I'm happy to be talking to you today. Well, and I, I and I have to say, I really appreciate you getting my name correct. A lot of people don't know to call me Minnie Bruce, and you did it. So thank you. Well, it's wonderful to have the two names together. In my opinion, actually, I think they sound great together, and uh, I, I can't stop saying it. Honestly. <laughs> um, so, what are your pronouns, if you'd like to share? Yes, um, they're definitely she and her. I definitely identify um, and always have identified as a girl or a woman or female. But my hope all along, even when I didn't know how to articulate it, was to live in a very gender-fluid world. Hmm. Okay, and can you tell me where and when you were born? Yes. Um, My hometown where I grew up is Centerville, Alabama. I was born in Selma because that was where the nearest hospital was. Um, I was born in 1946 and the state of rural health care was limited then and my mother needed extra care. So I was born in Selma, but that, that was just because it was the nearest hospital. And I, Centerville was my hometown. Very small when I was born, about 900 people. And could you tell me about growing up near Selma during that interesting period of, you know, the 40s and <laughs> 50s and 60s? Oh, gosh. You know, I have to limit what I say to you because I could talk all day and all night. I'm sure. um, yeah. Well, what people, I think, just, you know, to give a framework for people to think about my life, what people have to remember is that it was segregation. It was legal racist segregation at that time in Alabama. And of course, through most of the US for that matter, um, but you know, really viciously so in Alabama. But because I was a young white girl, I didn't 
have any understanding of um, the wrongness of that um, until I got to be college age. And, and the reason I began to understand something about the wrongness was because there was the black civil, black led civil rights movement that was being led in, out of Alabama. Um, and, you know, I, I think now people know something of that history. Of course, when it was going on, it was considered illegal and, um, and unpatriotic. And, you know, there was a lot of, there was just endless daily propaganda against people simply trying to get the right to vote, black people. Wow. You know, they had, even though legally it was their right to vote since for black men since 1872, I think, or 1870, and for women since 1920. But um, the power structure, the ruling, the white supremacist power structure, had managed to pass law after law after law after law that made it impossible for black people to vote. And, 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 and then if they persisted in trying to gain their right to vote, um, they were physically threatened and often killed. But I didn't know, I didn't understand any of that until the movement brought it to light. And then it, it took me, it's taken me the rest of my life to try to be faithful to those activists. I was not an activist then, I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, to give you to give people a concrete understanding, the cover of my senior, it was either my senior or my junior high school annual was a Confederate flag. Mm. So that's that's kind of where I was growing up. Yep. Um, the main issue was racism. That doesn't mean there wasn't a lot of queerness going around, but um, that was not the top of the agenda mm. for the repression. Now it is, mm -hmm. or you know, it's 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 up there. The anti-trans, anti-queer, anti-gay, along with racism. So there was a tremendous amount of repression of information, and I. Um, believed it all. It's important for people to understand. I didn't have alternate information. And um, then the civil rights movement, um, people, well, they demonstrated in the, you know, they, they were, they were doing demonstrations and they were doing actions and they, those were being shown on television but the narration was all white supremacist because the TV stations and the radio stations and so forth were in the hands of the white supremacists. Mm -hmm. And the newspapers so, too, I'm sure. But, but I saw people being attacked and that was horrifying by the police, I mean, and by the Klan. There were newsreels, you know, on TV. And that was really the beginning of my understanding that this was terrible injustice yeah i can imagine that would definitely have a serious effect 
So can you tell me about how you identify as a part of the LGBTQ plus community? Yes. Um, well, to connect that identification to my upbringing, the lack of information was the same around sexual issues and gender also. There was just no information, mm -hmm. really. Um, I mean, they're trying to put us back in that era by these laws about what cannot be yeah. discussed in the schools. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're really trying to take us back. Yeah. Um, the, the, the whites is the power structure, white, white supremacists. But so I didn't hear the word lesbian until I was about 14, maybe. And that was because of a cousin of mine came back from college and she had a a friend with her, and they were both very, they were both very tall and masculine women, but they were not queer identified, but they were being baited. They were being baited. They were roommates, and they were being baited as lesbians. Hmm. And, um, and they were talking about it with their mother, who was my aunt, we were all standing around outside in the yard, probably the only place we could really be private in the yard, and uh, under the pecan tree, and they were talking to her, and they said the word lesbian. And I, and I understood, oh, when you're out of the category, the category of traditional femininity, that's how you get baited. It may or may not be true. Right. Um, and then, so that was 1961 or so, maybe 1960, 61. And then I didn't really come into contact with queer communities until I was in, well, that's not true. <laughs> the best man at my wedding was a gay guy. Mm. He was a poet. We were in college in at the university together. So there was a hidden life, right? There was a, there was a very hidden life, but it, there was not a social scene. He was a friend, you know, he, de he died later of AIDS. Um, I'm very sorry about but that. I didn't find, I didn't get into a community until I was in graduate school and there was a women's liberation movement at the University of North Carolina. And of course, some of those people were lesbian mm -hmm. and they were not all lesbian so they had all all women parties and people were dancing and I saw women kissing and it was like oh my goodness and I was married I was married and I had two children you know wow. I was married I married when I was 20 and I had two children like right away I went to graduate school I had a child while I was in grad school and, in the middle of my grad school education and, um and you yeah yeah, and yeah. you knew at this time about your like queerness and queer identity, and how how did you go about uh, dealing with that once you had a family? Well, it wasn't easy. I'm sure it wasn't easy. Yeah, it was not easy. Um, you know, it was all connected for me with um, women's liberation and breaking with expectations of what it meant to be a woman. Um, and then still married. My children were starting to school, kindergarten and school. 
we moved to a different town. All this was happening in North Carolina because that's where I was in grad school. And um, I, I'd met somebody um, who, who was a lesbian. And, and that was very complicated, but I fell in love with her. And then there was a big, you know, mess. <laughs> the right word for it. <laughs> it's a terrible, terrible, terrible big mess. And the and the upshot of it was that my husband and then my ex-husband took my children away from me because you know it was 1975, and in every state in the U.S. it was a felony offense or almost every state at that point, to be, to be queer. So when he threatened that, I went to a lawyer in North Carolina in Raleigh, and she pulled the statute book down off her shelf, and she opened it up, and she read me the sodomy statute, which is the crime against nature statute, right? Mm -hmm. And it said, you know, she read all the penalties and all the things. I mean, it was... You know, you could be sentenced to not, more, you know, not less than two and or more than 20 years, you blah, blah, blah. You know, it was, and, and it was a felony offense. It was a felony offense. It was not a misdemeanor. You know, it was a felony. You went to, people went to jail for it. Mostly men went to jail for it, but some women. Wow. And, it, but, you know, I didn't go to jail. They just used it to take the children yeah. away from them. Yeah. So the children were, you know, they were like seven and six, and um, and that began many many years of our struggling to stay in touch with each other. Um, I was not given; I was given very limited visiting rights. I, I was not allowed to see them, for instance, unless I was in the presence of either my mother or my aunt or my ex-husband. So I could either see them at his house or I could travel to his house and get them and take them to my mother's house in, in Alabama. I was in North Carolina, he was in Kentucky, and my mother and my aunt were in Alabama. Oh, wow. You can imagine what that might have been like. Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of hours in the car driving. So the good news about that is we... We stayed in touch in different kinds of ways and, and, and kept a relationship and talked lots of conversations when we could have them. And, uh, and, and also their father got really tired of being a single parent. Mm. <laughs> and <laughs> it took him about five years, but he did get tired of it. Hmm and decided he would let me have them by myself. Okay. Right. Yeah. And anyway, so now they are um, in their 50s, and they have children. I have five grandchildren. That's great. I see them all, all the time. I see the children all the time. When Leslie was alive, they came here. We had the grandchildren with us. Um, it's, it's a good ending. It is part of what the struggle has been about from the 1970s till today. Like my, my, life, my life mirrors that struggle. Mm -hmm. 
really, from from being a Fallon to being, you know, a beloved grandmother who, you know, the children are horrified, the grandchildren, when I say, you know, they took, you know, they took Ransom and Ben away from me. They were like, what, what? How can that possibly be, they say, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it's so beautiful. So it's a, you know, it's a long, it's a, it's a very, you'll find that if you talk to anybody my age, you know, it's a long, complicated story, how we got to be here. Mm-hmm. And we were, everybody you talk to who's my age, my guess is, they were part of the struggle, right? Yeah. I mean, for sure, a lot of people know your name, especially when I talk, or I've mentioned you before about how I might interview you. And of course, yeah, like Margaret Himley, uh, she reminds me a lot. Oh, yeah, yeah, Margaret. And she was definitely part of the struggle, too. Boy, she fought tooth and nail with the Syracuse. I know. I know. I wanted to hear a little bit more about that, but I don't think I could. Yeah. So, well, it's great that you look back at it with these like bright eyes and, you know, you're able to think about like, it's beautiful that you look at your life as a mirror of the struggle and women's liberation like that. Like you're able to, you know, it's not just, you know, what people might have thought then, like, and even forcing you in that moment to even think like probably crazy things like, oh, I shouldn't come out. Like I should, you know, it's crazy that they would try and force you into that. And it's great right. that you persevered through all of that, which like I'm sure is incredibly hard and incredibly difficult. And I just want to thank you. Yeah, it, it was, it was, it was awful. And I don't want to minimize, you know, I've talked to a lot of young, younger people, people younger than me at different stages in their identity formation. And, and what I, and what I hear is that even though it's a different era, and even though it's true, it, you know, our sexuality now is not, right now anyway, right now is not criminalized. And we have marriage and, you know, we did, we won all that. It was an incredible, incredible victory of several generations of collaborative political work. I hear with young people there, are still, you know, real struggles going on to to have your own life, you know, and um, and of course, as you well know, we're in the period of a, a pushback of mm-hmm. repression, and and I have to say, I never thought I would be living in a period that reminded me so much of my childhood. Really. Has it been since Trump was elected? Ron DeSantis, Greg Abbott, you know, this anti-trans, anti-queer, anti-black, anti-migrant. It's like right out of my childhood. It, 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 it's shocking and horrifying. The good news is there's resistance. Yeah. Do you think yeah. that happened like when... Trump was starting to be, you know, run for president around 2015, 2016. Uh, Would you say that's when we came into this re-repressive place, this neo-repression? Well, he certainly made it, he certainly 
made it permissible publicly. I mean, really, he was the president and he made woman hating and black hating and queer hating just permissible. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and that's, that is what reminded me of my childhood because every white authority figure I heard in my childhood, every single one, you know, the mayor, all my teachers, the publisher of the newspaper, my preacher, my parents, you name it, they were all segregationists, all the authority figures, right? So when the president of the United States is an overt racist, then, whoa, anything goes. So he gave permission, but I have to tell you, the the cohort that is now in the majority in the Supreme Court is only an expression of, of current of people who have been organizing, well, I'd say since the 1950s. Uh, and who believe, you know, who are like, who are Christian nationalists who think, I mean, uh, you know, they, they're, they're really, um, it's just what they are. They think that other people of other religions don't get to have their religion. They, they really, they're also racist. They come out of a Southern tradition where, you know, all of the major Southern churches broke in the 18th, 18th. 1850s broke with the northern churches over slavery so the southern you know this there's a reason why they're called the southern baptist hmm. the southern the really? southern baptist wow. that's the big baptist denomination but mm-hmm. why are they called the southern baptist because they broke with the other Baptists to defend slavery. And uh, and the church I was raised in, which was Presbyterian, and the Methodist church across the square, they were all, they all broke with the other Christian denominations to preserve slavery. And so that whole current has been defending right-wing politics ever since, ever since. Very few of them have changed their line. A few of them, but not all that many. Um, and now they're organized politically. And they, they have, you know, they began that in the, um, they began the political organizing in the 1950s and it got stronger and stronger in the 70s and the 80s. Um, the evangelical talk show hosts and so mm-hmm. forth. But it's not just an, um, a media phenomena. They've been organizing. They've been sending literature into the churches, right? Like, I watched the church I was raised in go become an anti-abortionist church. Nobody talked about abortion when, we were, when I was coming along. You just weren't supposed to have sex before you got married. That was the answer. Um, but... Now it's explicit, explicit, you know, these explicit values, no abortion, no women should be subservient to their husband, blah, 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 all that stuff. Um, it's a reaction to the gains we've made as in our, in our movements. 
Um, but they they did a great job. I don't I hate to praise them. I'm not praising them. I'm just saying they out organized the left on these issues. Mm. They organized at the community level. And they're very strong, and we've got to do that kind of work, too. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it's a money thing, too. There's a lot of these, you know, it's a funded money and giving politicians money, especially just to help your platform. And Trump was a, was not a Christian man until he ran for president. Mm. <laughs> I know. I know. What a contradiction. Oh, my God. Like. But here's the thing, because I was raised in this religion, I really know how people in it think. Mm. I know exactly how they think. Mm. They are saying to themselves, he's fallible, he's a sinner, but God sent him for us. Mm. Mm. I mean, you have spot on, honestly. I come from a Catholic family, so I can oh. see it a little bit, you know? Well and um you know yeah i know yeah you know you know yeah. i don't know i bet the history of your life is interesting sebastian <laughs> definitely not as interesting as yours we'll get back to you oh i don't know <laughs> okay so so that's that's a lot of background but i think it's helpful for people to to think historically partly because it's easy for us to forget how much we've won and how we did it and if we can remember that and and regroup, and people are regrouping, um, you know, we didn't win because of the Democratic Party. We did not. Mm -hmm. We won because we self-organized. Yeah. So people just, you know, have got to get back to that place. Mm. Now what? What's the next question? <laughs> can you tell me about what your connection is to Syracuse and how, how would you say you're affiliated with Syracuse and in what ways, if you want to tell me about how you came here? Oh, yeah. It's a really, it, it was a very great thing for me to come to Syracuse. Um, and this is connected to the early part of my life, too. You know, when I got my PhD in 1979, it was when gay and lesbian and bi rights were flourishing, but were not one. And so it was still um, acceptable by universities, not just public schools, but universities to fire people who are gay if they were out as gay. And so when I got my degree, I knew uh, I had friend, a lot of friends who were losing their jobs because they were out and gay. Mm. Um, so I had to make a decision. Was I going to hide myself to get work, you know, hide who I was, or was I just going to try to be myself and live a pretty precarious life? I thought I would, um, you know, I had a PhD, but that didn't mean didn't mean I'd be able to get a job if I hid who I was. Um, so the only place I could get work at first was a historically black college and university in Fayetteville, North Carolina, which was where I was living, Fayetteville State. And, and, and I learned a lot there. I knew I was pretty ignorant 
about everything and my students taught me really humility and history and my co-workers also they were very tolerant of my ignorance or maybe not tolerant anyway uh, and I went on from there I had a series of jobs that were just you know like two classes in the fall maybe we'll give you two more classes in the spring they paid me I don't know thousand dollars a class or fifteen hundred dollars a class and I lived that like that for years and years and years because I I just wasn't gonna lie about who I was you know um, now what that meant was I could do the work I wanted to do I wrote what I wanted to write needed to write and I I did political work that I needed to do The ironic thing is that one of the things I wrote, which was the end racist, it, the feminist current in the academy, and then it just began to be taught everywhere in the colleges by feminists. So I got to be well-known, but not hireable. <laughs> I was well-known, but not hireable. And then I got, then I got a, a, like a, the same kind of jobs, but in Washington, you know, these part-time jobs. I was hireable as a part-timer, but not as a tenure person, not as a full-time person. Right. Mm. And that went on, that went on for years and years. I lived very, very frugally. I had no money. But I did my work, and uh, and I had a great life, uh, full of you know ups and downs, but still a great life. And then um, I got a couple of different positions, being a guest, invited guest person for a year or a semester, and then I was fifty-eight. Yeah, fifty-eight. Right. <laughs> It was 58, and, and Syracuse was starting its LGBTQ program, and they needed a, a face, <laughs> right? And somebody who could be, you know, chatty and nice and, mm -hmm. right, all that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And, but it was completely accidental. I was out of work. I'd been teaching at an experimental school. I was out of work. They had fired all the women faculty. Um and Leslie had a speaking engagement up at Canton, and Margaret Hemley's partner, Robert, Robin Riley, was teaching up there. And Leslie and Margaret and Robin were somewhere together, because Leslie was speaking up there. And Leslie, because she was trying to help me get work, I was trying to get a job somewhere. Leslie said, they said, we're starting this program. We're blah 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 we're looking for blah, blah, blah. and Leslie said Minnie Bruce needs a job <laughs> <laughs> they were like really mm -hmm. what really she's like yes yes and you know that's how it started we they, you know then it was this you know it was a process right um 
a very wonderful, again, collaborative process between women's studies, the LGBTQ faculty, that, who a lot of whom who are in um, composition and cultural rhetoric, mm. and then others, you know, uh, who were in different areas spread across the university. They did a great job, you know, making it happen. And, and, and I came, I came to Syracuse. Um, I was very grateful to have it. It was the first, well, I was there on a contract. So at first I had a two year contract and then I had a three year contract. Every time I had to struggle to get my contract renewed. So it was never completely secure, mm -hmm. but other people were trying to help me stay. Good. I wasn't doing it all by myself. And then I was part of the stuff that was going on there, right? Like when I first got there and I went to Human Resources to register Leslie as my partner, they wouldn't accept our certificate from New Jersey that we were, um, oh, it was before marriage, you know, we were, whatever the language was, mm -hmm. you know, they had all these different yeah. forms, mm -hmm. right? It was, it was not a marriage, it was like a certified partner or something, I don't know, we'd gone through a ceremony at the, at the, um, city hall and we had a certificate, we had a certificate stamped with New Jersey on it and a signature and a big front, you know, a, the whole shebang. No, they wouldn't take that. They had to have our bank account statement, <laughs> our bank account statement. As if like some people don't have joint bank accounts, even if they're married, mm, right? True. My parents don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was, it was hard, it was insulting and and humiliating, right? And that was one of the first things we, we had a struggle about was the way human resources was handling partners. And so how did your experience at Syracuse University go from that point on teaching classes? Like, what did you teach? And how was, how did you deal with, you know, Syracuse also developing as, you know, as being a little bit right, right. You know, more progressive? Right. Well, um, I taught the first LGBTQ class ever at Syracuse. We made t-shirts that said first, you know, everybody had a t-shirt. Some of them wouldn't wear them. Yeah. Some of them wouldn't wear really? them. Hmm. Yeah. No. Mm -mm. No, that would have been 2006, I think. I'd have to go back and look at my records. I, so I taught that a couple of different years and then it started to rotate through, you know, the different faculty. Um, I taught the first trans uh, oriented class at the university. I really liked that. I taught it several times. Um, I taught women's studies. I taught composition. I taught creative writing because um, I was shared among the departments. Okay. I had three different departments, right? I had three different, because they were all, all funding me, so they got a little piece. <laughs> yeah. <Which three laughs> they were all funding me. And the thing is, of course, 
I had a reputation in all three areas, right? I was a writer, I was a feminist and a women's liberationist, mm. and I was a queer activist. And, you know, um, so it was relevant. Um, and I, I mostly just taught. I, I, I lent, you know, I would lend a hand if there was a struggle, right? But um, I didn't, I wasn't really a within school organizing. I was a teacher and I was, you know, sort of a figurehead in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, they could say, oh, Minnie Bruce Pratt teaches here. <laughs> you know? And it was it was good. It was good. But I have to say, I felt like I had more impact on the graduate students. Well, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. It's hard to say. It's hard to say who you have an impact on. But the last year I taught there was the year that the, um, the first occupation of the, of the administration building happened. Not the not the most recent one, but the very first one, and it would have been 2014, November 2014, and it was a great coalition effort of many different oppressed people, and some of the key organizers were in my graduate class. Oh. It was called Feminist Narratives, mm-hmm. and they would go. They would. They were living at the administration building, but they would leave and come to my, my class, and then I would say. Tell me what you learned about narrative this week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they would talk about the administration spokespeople who were sent to give their version of the narrative and how they answered it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 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 It was an amazing class. It really was. It was, a, it was my idea of how one sh- should be able to teach. Movement is happening here. People come for a break and talk it over, and then they go back. And there's information in the classroom of other struggles mm-hmm. that might be helpful. Yeah, that's to me. That's that's ideal. The ideal way to have you know a living classroom. Yeah. But it, it don't mean, yeah. Sounds like a dream class. Uh, it was. It yeah. was my dream class. Really. How are we doing on time, Sebastian? How are we doing? Uh, check oh we're we're doing good i mean we can move forward if you'd like we're at 250 um i've got um so can you tell me about your poetry and your works your uh you know all about them yeah and uh yeah just start there yeah (laughs) (laughs) um so I think the maybe the most important thing to know about my poetry is that it came out of the movement, out of um, the lesbian feminist and lesbian queer cultural movement, which was connected to this big movement we've been talking about that was about ending the sodomy laws and winning marriage and, you know, all that. There was a big movement and then within it, there were different sub movements. And one of them was the women in print movement and the lesbian literary movement. Um, And I was part of that. So the women in print movement was, again, very practical. 
we were writing about sexual issues, lesbian issues, but not just lesbian issues, you know, um, People were trying to put out information about abortion, about loving your own body, about knowing your own body. And the people who, who ran the printing presses wouldn't print it mm -hmm. because they considered it pornographic and also threatening to the patriarchy. Mm -hmm. So what happened with the women in print movement is that women from all over the country got together. They were doing this in their own communities and then they got together. And it became a national movement to start bookstores, start learn how to print, start printing, printing companies, um, start distribution companies, start um, uh, lesbian feminist publishing companies. They were all over the all over the country, and that, and it was happening in the queer movement as well. There were you know newspapers. And, So I, I was in Durham, at the, I was in North Carolina at the time. I was in Fayetteville and then I was in Durham. And there was a newsletter. And then it briefly became a magazine called Feminary. And we had a collective, the Feminary Collective. It was a lesbian magazine published. And Sinister Wisdom, which is this legendary lesbian magazine, had already started in Charlotte, North Carolina, and then it had moved to get better funding to, I don't know, North Dakota, I think. Somebody was a professor at North, Car North Dakota and was going to fund them. Anyway, well, we stepped in, and we had this magazine, and there was another one in New York, Conditions. And so I went on from there. I was part of a group. I was part of a group, and we read each other's material, and we learned to print it. And you know, I I don't have my first book handy, but you know, I self-published my first book, and that meant typing it myself and photographing the plate so that my lover, who had learned how to print, could print the pages, and then I trimmed it and stapled it. My children helped with that. Somehow I got a hold of them briefly to help me put the book together. <laughs> oh my God. And it, the same equipment that was printing the first non-sexist children's books, Lollipop Power in Durham, North Carolina. They had their own printing equipment, and so they let us use it. Oh. Um, and I went on from there. I mean, you know, there were, I went on from there. There were a lot of books. Um, the first ones were published with Firebrand Books, which um, which published this, which is the second book, which was about losing the children, Crime Against Nature, and this one won a big national prize. And so, no, you know, everybody, everybody in my literary circle was sh shocked, shocked. We were all shocked. Like, how did the Academy of American Poets even know that this existed? I mean, it was nominated, but, you know. And so, and then, uh, there's so much to say about this, but I read at the Guggenheim with John Hollander and Richard Wilbur, and hmm. not Richard Wilbur, um, suppressing his name. Anyway, it doesn't matter. 
it doesn't matter. I made a political statement. They almost threw me off the stage. Hmm. People were hissing from the audience. You know, it was like a big clash of cultures, right? And, all, you know, Adrienne Rich was there, all these folks I knew from the lesbian literary movement. Anyway, I went on from there to just keep writing. And we got absorbed to some degree into the mainstream, like um, my next book was published by the University of Pittsburgh Press. This latest book was published by Wesleyan University. They have poetry series. They're prestigious, right? Mm -hmm. But um, also I had trouble with my next to last book, which was I thought was a great book. But I had modeled it on the Communist Manifesto, and nobody wanted to publish it. Mm. I finally, I finally was able to get it published um, by being a judge in a contest where they publish your book and then, you know, mm -hmm. you choose a book, right? This is the most recent Crime Against Nature, and this has come out from Sinister Wisdom, which remember I mentioned mm -hmm. was the yeah. right. The Sinister Wisdom has kept going year after year after year, and now it is back in the South, it is in Florida of all places, <laughs> and. And puts that still is putting out the journal Sinister Wisdom and is publishing books. Julie mm -hmm. Inter, who was a who's a, another firebrand. So, um, so that's sort of like the history of the writing. The the guts of the writing is um, trying to bear witness to a queer life. That's what it is. Trying to bear witness to a queer life as truthfully as I can, and um, and for a while I didn't think that was enough, but lately I think it is enough. I'm sure it is. It really sounds like it. Um, yeah, that's amazing. So, can you actually tell me a little bit more about that? About how your process is when you try and as you say, bear witness, uh, but like, how would you, how do you turn these images and memories into, you know, craftily chosen syntax? Yeah, yeah, it's such a good question, Sebastian, it really is. Because there's so much, right? Like, how do you, how do you find, how do you even know, right? Um, The process is really different for each book, um, depending on what the what the framework of the book is, and and I kind of usually know in general what the framework is. It involves some current struggle, right? Um, like. The book that was based on the Communist Manifesto, I was I came to that very late, and I was I was being mentored by an old communist who was a great labor organizer, and he was talking to me about how to how to put words into action, right? And um, and I asked him. 
I, I talked to him about what I was working on, and he said, rather than write in a way that you're showing sensitivity to a situation of struggle, looking at it from the outside, right? Write as if you're in the middle of the struggle, in the middle of it, and see how that changes your writing. It's, it, 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 it's a big difference. Mm -hmm. It's a big difference. Those are words of wisdom. Very yeah, nice. they are great. I, I have them printed out sitting on my writing desk, hmm. right? You know, yeah, yeah, I'm going to remember them. So. <laughs> I'll send you. Let me make a note. To... I'll send you the excerpt. I'll email it to you. Thank you so much. Yeah, they're really, yeah. Wow. It, and it's easy to do. Um, Milt, his name was. Uh, what was his he name? was an old, he's an old, old communist, and he organized in the steel mills in Buffalo. Oh wow, that's that's really yeah, interesting. Yeah. Oh, he was a wonderful man. He was a great, great thinker. So, I started. Um, I was already sort of doing that, obviously, you know, with my own life and so forth. But when I was in Jersey City. I wanted to, I, I read the Communist Manifesto, and there's this passage in there. Um, that just this beautiful language. I'd never read it, and I had no idea these two economists could write this beautiful language. I just couldn't believe it. It's so clear, it's so beautiful. And it's so hopeful. And I thought, oh, well, if these guys can write like poets, what if a poet tries to write about the economy and work? Like, what if I just flip it? Mm -hmm. And so then I would just go around Jersey City and I would just try to pay attention to people working. Like, what were they doing? What, what was it like for them? You know, what was it like for them? Like Mr. Atumakar, who, you know, um, was the, at the post office, and I would go in and he would be putting letters in the postal boxes and talking to me through the openings, mm -hmm. you know, like how to get, how to really deliver, like the meaning of what it means, of, of, of that moment um, for him and for me. Um, I wrote a whole book about, about, you know, some of it was in North, you know, some of it was from the South and then some of it was up North. I, I work on these books for a long, long time, like walking back up Depot Street. I worked on it for 17 years easily. Mm. And inside the money machine, I, I don't know, you know, 10 years, 11 years, 12 years, maybe. But I, it's like I write, 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 and then I go back, I go back and pull stuff from that I've been working on all along, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm working on stuff, and sometimes I don't know what it's for, and then something happens, and it uh, comes into focus, mm -hmm. right? 
Um, and that's what happened with Inside the Money Machine. And then I thought, nobody wants to publish this book. Is it because I said it's based on the Communist Manifesto? Like this was 2011, mind you, right? 2010. And... Um, and then the pandemic came along. The book was had been out for 10 years. And I got a call from the guy who's head of the poetry project in New York. And he said, that book, that book. He said, my mother's a nurse and she's had to retire and she felt so guilty. And she also felt nobody honored her for her work. And I got that, the poem about clocking out you know, forgetting to clock out. It was about my nurse friend who retired. And she, it was about all her work as a nurse. And then the day she, she closed up her desk and left, she forgot to clock out. Hmm. She forgot to clock out. <laughs> she was like still a nurse, right? Still a nurse. Anyway, he said, I read that letter to my mother and she said she finally felt honored for her work. Hmm. This poem I had written 15 years before. That's yeah. powerful. Can yeah. You... So I don't know. This is not really an answer to your question, except just stay with it. You know, and whatever pulls at you, write it. And don't think about what where it's going to go or what it's going to do or who's going to read it or any of that stuff just if it pulls at you write it yeah yes that brings me to another question actually which is when you after you take 10 or 17 years of writing like a book that you think you know it's definitely you always I, i'm sure it comes to your mind like oh is this my magnum opus like when do you reach that point of like you are satisfied with the text like what turns in you like what that is like a really really good question which people often don't ask i wonder they don't ask because i've never yeah. felt finished actually with any of my works yeah actually. yeah yeah it's a very complicated process because, of course, they're the individual whatever, right? The individual chapters or poems or whatever. And, and, the, and they get a lot of revising. And then there's the... Then there's the feeling of, is this, you know, am, am I at the end of a book? Like, am I done with this? Am I finished with this, right? And honestly, the poems stop coming. Mm. They stop coming. In other words, I've been writing, 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 and at some point I'm writing mostly in a particular area, right? Doesn't mean it's the only thing I'm writing, but I'm mostly writing in this one area, like this last book for Leslie. I started writing that. I started writing poems for that in two thousand and four, maybe. And I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And I wrote a whole bunch of other poems too, that are in a another book I'm working on right now. Um, but 
you know, Leslie died and I just working through my grief for her and I wanted to do this book. It was her book and um, and then I put it, I put a manuscript together and then that's a whole long process because even as you're shuffling poems around, if you figure out what you want, you're still revising the poem. Many times, more than that, probably. You know. um, the only guidance I can give you, honestly, is that when a poem is as done as it should be, and you should leave it alone, it's like It feels like a piece, it feels like a piece of music that's finished. You know, like you read it and it's just like complete. There's no little comma here or something, you know, it just like, it has its own, it's like its own organic entity. It's like a creature almost. And you can't mess with it anymore. <laughs> You're a hurt it. You'll hurt it. Um, it's beyond you. It's moved beyond you. You know, you've done, you've found all the little places where you skimmed over something or you lied to yourself about something or you're pretending like that didn't really happen or, you know, there are all kinds of things you can do in a poem to lie to yourself mm -hmm. or just not go deep enough or whatever. And um, there just comes a point where for then it's done. And it doesn't mean that 10 years from now, you might not look back and think, oh, yeah, that, that, when, that ending is really, it could have been a better ending. But that's who I was then. You say to yourself, that's who I was then. And Audre Lorde, if you know, mm -hmm. you I've know Audre Lorde. Okay. Okay. So she has, yeah, all my poetry books are in the other room. Um, she has a collection called Chosen Poems and New or Chosen Poems. And there's a little introduction to that. Maybe I'll just send you that because I have the PDF. Okay. Thank you. And Audre, PDF, Audre, revision. It's about revision. It's an incredible, like it's like three little pages. It's just incredible. She and her lover were living in a house in the British, in the U.S. Virgin Islands. A tornado came and wiped out the house. That included all of Audrey's books and manuscripts and everything. So she's walking around in the ruins of her own house and her own library. And she looks down at her feet. This is how she writes the little introduction, a little piece on revision. She looks down at her feet and she sees her first book, the little chapbook, the first little chapbook she ever put together. And she picks it up and she's standing in the ruins of her house and she starts reading the poems. <laughs> she starts reading the poems and says to herself, Oh, I wonder if I could make these any better. 
<laughs> right. And then, then this little this little introduction is about how she decided whether she would mess with the Ponzi. I think this is the I think this is the piece for you. Okay. Yeah. I need an answer to that question, but you yes. gave me a great I one. Think, Thank you. What? You gave me a Yeah. Great. I think Audrey's answer is going to be a really, really good answer. Because what she says is, you only want to make it more of what it already is, not different from what it already is. That reminds me of a saying I heard yesterday from a chef, actually, when it comes to food. And it was like a chef undersalted his food. And like one of the master chefs said, uh, they said, like, think of salt as a magnifying glass. And oh. it just brings out the flavor. And the only, you know, you want just the perfect amount. And I think that way, too. Like, just, I think I'll, I'll use that in my writing now, too, actually, about how I need to, it's the core essence I need to, it's also something writers have to stick to. It's, you know, your essence of your work, and then you don't want to stray too far, but uh, you just told me that if I feel I'm going a certain way, I should go that way, because I'm very much, you know, a spontaneous, prosody kind of guy when I write, but it's, um, it's, it's, you know, it's just of years and years of work I've got ahead of me. Yeah, but if you want, if you love it, then what a good life. Mm, I think so, too. It's the dream for me, at least. It is a dream. Yeah, it's a good life. I mean, I think the most important thing is I, I have a granddaughter who's a musician, and I've had this conversation with her. I just said, you know, and she's already thinking this way. I said, what do you? what are you thinking about college and what are you thinking about? She says, you know, it's really hard to sustain yourself with performance alone. She says, so I'm trying to figure out something else I can do at, at the same time. She says, like sound engineering. Oh, that's like my teaching. That was my second, you know, that was my second thing. I loved it, love to teach. But it also meant I could do my poetry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I agree exactly. Like I'm, I want to do the exact same thing and go to grad school and get my PhD. And I think you're like a great example about how someone <laughs> should, you know, go about writing. Yeah. Don't let them suck you down the tenure track road, though. Okay. Don't let. All yeah. Right. I'll remember that because no. One's don't let them do. Don't let. Don't let them do that because it's a. They keep telling you, oh, once you finish, you can do your own work. Beware. Beware. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to make up your own decision. And some people can do it. I'm not saying everyone can't. I'm not saying it's bad for everyone. But it's tricky. Tricky. Very tricky. And I'm not yeah, as good tricky. with time management as I'd hope. And especially when I have a full-time job, I'm sure squeezing in my work will be even harder. So. <laughs> so are we are, do we need to squeeze here at the end is that what sure, we sure we can squeeze in if you want to actually tell me a little bit about your spouse's work your spouse leslie feinberg if you could tell me a little bit about well first more about how you met and you know your relationship and how it culminated in oh uh, yeah oh that's such a long story i think i can't tell you because it's so 
emotional. Um, but I'm actually trying to write a creative. I'm, I've got the three quarters of a draft of a creative nonfiction book about called Marrying Leslie, but it really is about all the ways that you love somebody, right? Not the legal stuff, right? So we we met each other in 92. And um, I'll just say that the first phone call I had with her, I laughed more in that phone call than I had practically in my whole life. <laughs> it was so much fun. It was so much fun. And then I learned so much from Leslie about all kinds of things. Like, I don't know, she, I, I think she learned from me too, but I'm not as clear about what she might have learned from me. Um, but for the record, for the record, what I can say that people should know about Leslie is that um, she is best known for Stone Butch Blues, which is an iconic genderqueer novel. And really the first, not the first, but really the first wildly popular genderqueer novel since um, uh, Radcliffe Hall, which was turn of the century, last mm -hmm. century. Um, Stone Butch Blues. And if people want to read it, they should go to lesliefeinberg.net and it's up free online PDF. And also it's being translated into different languages. It's been translated into Italian, but it's out of print and I'm trying to find someone who will do a new translation. Um, the translations are free also, French, Basque, Spanish, more translations coming. So that's what she's best known for, but what her really, her genius groundbreaking work was, um, a Marxist inter, uh, analysis of the rise of gender, the male, female, bi-gender uh, concepts based on class society. So going all the way back to the rise of class society and tracing the way that the need for ownership generated the division into femaleness and maleness so that people who had property would know who their sons were, right? And then all the all the ways of being that within indigenous culture were flexible, different social roles, different genderednesses, many different words for different ways of being in your body. All the indigenous cultures across the world, not just in the U.S., had all these different ways, and they were systematically crushed by colonialism and imperialism. And this other system laid over them. Um, and Leslie, you know, Leslie takes that all apart very, in a very popular way. It's very readable. It's very easily understandable. Um, and it was really the beginning of transgender studies, her book, even though um, similar to me in my essay, she was never, you know, she was never taken into the academy. 
Mm-hmm. Right. I did find a place in the academy, uh, but that's because my subject was already in women's liberation, was already in the academy as feminist studies or women's studies. But trans studies wasn't yet in the academy when Lessa did her work, right? So it's a work of genius, a sheer work of genius. And uh, based on her, you know, all of her writing is based on her being a revolutionary communist. Uh, And if people want to know more, they should read her books and go to the website and, you know, just learn about her work in that kind of way. Um, I was, we were really happy together. We were really, really happy together. That's really We did everything. Yeah, we did, you know, we, we talked about our work together. We organized, we were parents and grandparents together. We, we laughed a lot. We laughed like a the lot. dream. Sounds like the dream. It was a dream. It was a dream. It's really hard to be without her. I'm sure. I'm really sorry about your loss. So we can move forward if, you know, it's a, a little bit, uh, you know, I know it's a sensitive topic. And I think I want to read your next book about marrying Leslie. And I'm going to make sure. <laughs> good. Oh, good. Maybe you'll be one of my readers. <sighs> yes, I will. I will be. I- of course because i need i need readers for it and you would be you would be um you know i've got i've got people i've got people at different ages but i don't have anybody your age yet please i can you know i have other poets sign you sign you up for that yeah because some of it has to do with like yeah is there stuff that really needs to be explained right you know like it's based on how we lived but maybe there's stuff that isn't clear i don't know i'm trying not to go under with it it's really hard to write it i have my journals that helps um Mm. i'm trying to be honest i'm trying to go back and look at how we were and and pull out of that what I might not have understood at the time, but I understand now, you know, um, I don't know. I've got to get back to it. I, I put it aside to finish another book and now I have to get back to it. Mm. It's coming up on the anniversary of her de- death. She died November 14th, mm. November, no, November 15th, 2014. Get the date scrambled. November 15th, 2015. Okay. Yes, is that yes so moving along is yes. good. Moving along is good, Sebastian. Okay. We'll move along forward to about... Uh, can you tell me about how you've dealt with intersectional oppression against, you know, your race, your gender, your sexual orientation? Uh, and I guess in this case, you know, it's uh, about your more gender and sexual orientation. So, of course, you know, if you'd like to tell me more about that. Um... Gosh, you know, it's kind of an interesting question. I think that, um, you know, because I was part of the movement, that was how I dealt with it, really. I mean, I suffered. I mean, emotionally, I suffered, you know, because of not having children and worrying about them and 
but um, but I was always part of the movement, and so that kept me from despair. So, like, I'd say putting your effort into the movement, it gave you a, like solace. Would you say or? It gave me solace, but it also made me feel like we were going to change it. You know, it wasn't so much solace as it gave me company. That was solace, definitely, company. But also, we were going to change it. I mean, we were, and we did. (laughs) I mean, it was just like, it was like that quote, like what Milt said, I was inside it. I wasn't outside it. I was inside it. Mm-hmm. And then what happened inside it was that inside the movement, we were dealing with, we were trying to deal, some of us, the left wing of us, we were trying to deal with racism and anti-Semitism and all of those things because they were inside the movement. So I wasn't dealing so much with the external world as I was dealing with this whole world of the movement, you know. So there were these internal struggles like National Women's Studies Association kept trying to deal with its structural racism and failing. And um, I mean, and ultimately there there was an overturning of it in a, in a good way, you know, women of color came into the leadership and people who were intransigently racist just quit being mm-hmm. active, you know, but that didn't take, that took a long time, you know, a long time. So, so I guess, I guess that's the short answer is I, I just was inside the struggle against these things all the time and, and still I am. I mean, it's a little harder now because, um, um, of COVID and the isolation and everything, mm. right? But um, but I'm still doing it. And actually, that just reminded me, I should look at my phone because my I should bring my phone in here because one of my children who's helping me with tech problems was going to call me, and I don't want him to think I'm ignoring him. Okay. So no let me grab my phone. I'll be right back. I'll be right back. So, how have you, oh, sorry, can I ask, um, so what wisdom would you like to bestow upon future generations of queer (laughs) and non-queer listeners of this oral history? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Oh, wow. Well, this isn't so much about queerness, but it is, really. You know, to really pay attention, to really pay attention to what your yearning is, you know, your your deepest yearning. Um, because we were told it was bad, right? But, um, you know, one can certainly do hurtful things to other people, but getting in touch with why you're yearning and what you're yearning for 
really that deep yearning um, I think is never about destruction. I think it's always about attraction and love and a vision of something good that you could do. And it's not necessarily clear how maybe to do it, right? Um, so there's that, to be true to your, to your own yearning and also to never be alone in your struggles, to find a way to be with other people somehow, what, however, however that might be, you know, there are all kinds of ways to do that. Um, but sometimes it's easier to do that than other times. Right now, I think the, you know, those terrible voices that you and I were talking about that got Mm -hmm. amplified by the bad president. Mm -hmm. um, I think those are, 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 are making it harder for people to reach out. You know, it makes us more reluctant. Um, and I think we have to push that aside, you know, and try to really reach out to each other. I don't mean to people who are being mean to us. I mean to people with whom we have common goals, you know. That, that we might be able to do something together. And uh, and sometimes it's just something very simple, like planning on having a meal with somebody once a week, right? And, and for somebody else, it might be doing work together, sharing work. Um, there are all kinds of ways, but just to, to know that you know, all those slogans are really correct. The people united will never be defeated. El Pueblo Unido, Amasara Vencido. You know, we march down the street chanting, but it's true, actually. You know, but how you fa find your people and how you connect to them and how you do work with them and all that, you know, is unique to each person. You have to find that door. And, um, and be very patient with the other people and firm also, right? Like not say if, if you think somebody is being off base and racist, and but you don't have to give up on them either, mm. you know? You can say, no, don't do that. I mean, I've certainly done that in my day, you know? No, you can't tell racist jokes while I'm driving you in the car. I'm just going to stop right here, and you'll have to get out and walk home. Huh. <laughs> I mean, there are ways to do it, right? Mm, no. <laughs> you want to walk home? <laughs> no. Great. <laughs> Good stop. <laughs> Oh my one. gosh, I don't know. You know, what can I say? You just, you both have to be patient and stand up against oppression at the same time. Those things mm -hmm. keep going. I mean, you're already doing it. You Look what you're doing. You're doing your part, that's for sure. So. I hope so. I really well, you are, so. Sebastian, and persisting, you know, despite the broken phone. <sighs> Thank you.
Thank you. I tried. Yeah. I tried. Yeah. yeah. I wish there's. Well, no... I'm happy, happy to get to talk to you. Yes, me too. I'm about to ask my final question in that case, if that's okay with you. Um, can you tell me? Well, going back, honestly, what you were saying about how like you had to be together and with someone uh, through the process of feeling alone, often in places, you know, where especially in the LGBTQ community where, you know, being alone can be often like a very central theme to coming out and being, you know. And I want to know, who are you grateful for? And are there any words you'd like to share with anyone? <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, this is always a hard one, so I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's a really, really good question because you know after Leslie died it was very hard for me to think about who I was grateful for I, I mean part of it was just I just had to keep living and that was hard to do but um then there was a period where I would wake up every morning and say oh no I have to get up not a good way to start the day right so then I started saying to myself when you wake up Try to think of what you're grateful for. You know, something that's going to happen during the day or maybe something that happened the day before. So it's a really, really good question. Um, right now, today, I'm very grateful for the neighbors in my building who I don't know very well, but who... Uh, I live on a very multinational floor in my building, and so, like, the, you know, there's a grandfather who's taking care of his grandchild, he's, he's an African-American grandfather and an African-American grandchild, and the person across from me is another man who's a young, much, much younger, also African-American, taking care of young boys, his boys, raising them. Um, my neighbor, you know, who's wide and my age and is not well, but always talks to me. It's a good thing right now for me to be where there are these people who, I don't know what they think of me, you know, probably that old white lady, who knows, but they're kind to me and I'm kind to them, right? And we're all living here together um, on this on our on our floor. Some queer people too. Some other queer people who are suffering. I think um, I'm just really grateful for them, and I'm really grateful that I have my family. I can't believe it sometimes, but all those grandchildren I talk to, you know, some of them almost every week. Some of them not so often. Um, and I'm grateful for, um, I have some friends my age, one of whom was a nurse, and I'm, I've known her since we were toddlers. She, we're exactly the same age, and she's a lesbian, and she's, she's still alive. Hmm. And I, I see her when I go home to Alabama, and we've known each other all our lives. Wow. Kathy. And I really, really love her. We really love each other. And I have another friend who's um, part of the literary cult culture. 
Irena, Irena Klepfish. She just published a new book, a really wonderful new book. It's her collected poems. Um, she's a Holocaust survivor. She was, she was four, I think, when her mother got her out of the country. Her father was part of the resistance and died there. And, um, but with both of these friends, with Irena and with Kathy, both of whom have had extremely difficult lives as lesbians, we just laugh all the time when we talk to each other. <laughs> we just laugh. I mean, we're angry, you know, too, but we also just laugh. I'm really grateful for that laughter. I'm really, really grateful for that. And Julie, let me mention Julie Ensler. Julie with Sinister Wisdom, who I also laugh with when I see her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She's, you know, doing so much to like make sure she's doing her own version of what you're doing. You oh. know, she's trying to you know, she's just trying to make sure things don't get lost. Wow. I should yeah. I should talk to her then. I should send her. Yeah, yeah. Just Google Google Sinister Wisdom. You'll learn, you that'll be an education in and of itself. Okay, and look yeah. for Julie. I will. And when, as soon as I get off, I'm going to send you what I promised you. Of course. I have my thank you so much. My little list right here. Oh my gosh! Thank you so much. Well, is there oh, anything else you. you'd like to add, or are we okay to finish? Um, just, I think, you know, to, to everybody who's listening to this and who knows who that'll be, right? Mm -hmm. No matter what's going on, united organizing with respect for individuals can be so powerful. It can change the world and has and will again. That's the way to go. Solidarity across all of our, you know, solidarity with others who have their own special oppressions. Solidarity with them so that we figure out how to stick with each other. Hmm. Yeah. Thank well, you. Then, you know, we'll just keep making the world better. United. Yeah. I just read. I just read the last section of chapter two of the Communist Manifesto. We were making a class for Workers World. We were making a slideshow for a class, and we were looking for a nice ending to this class on state and revolution. And we put the section in from the end of chapter two of the manifesto. It was like when the working class becomes united and starts setting its own agenda. What has to happen? And then there was this list of ten things that had to happen. To, to change into a new form of state, right? A new kind of state, not a capitalist state, but a worker's state, right? And we were reading through this list of 10 things. And I said to the person I was working with, Lynn, I said, hey, look at that. Cuba's already done all of those things. Oh my God. He, he, so this was from 1848 until now, right? We have at least one state in the world that has gone through all of these things that Karl Marx and Frederick Engels said needed to be done to have a state that was not dominated by capitalism. I thought, oh my God, I never thought of it that way. They said this needed to be done. And now 150 years later, people have been trying to make it happen. 
and at least one place it has been fulfilled. And others are still trying. Mm. Whole nations are mm. still trying. So I, I think for people to remember, it's when you're sunk in your own struggle, it can seem insurmountable. And you may not see the end of it. But 150 years later, somebody may. Somebody may. We're just in another stage of it right now where we have to really fight hard mm -hmm. mm. against these neo-fascists, you know, <laughs> yeah. who have no imagination. None. <laughs> True. Exactly. None. I know. None. I want to be able to that's why, that's, why the, that's why the writers and the poets and the that's why we're needed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you.